Mark chapter 7. How you guys doing tonight? Everybody doing well? Yeah? A few people? Doing all right. Doing all right. A little tired. Missed lunch, so I'm kind of hungry, but I'm okay. What's that? Gum? No, I'm okay. Thank you. I'll be up here loud. And the Bible says, pop and gum, that's what I do. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. We are uh, looking at a really, this could easily be a hot button passage. And there's a lot of implications to this. Um, And I'm not really feeling the pressure to need to teach on all of the possible fingers, if you will, of, of what's in this particular passage, mainly because we've been dealing with a lot of this even recently as we've gone through 1 Corinthians. And this is something that um, if you've been around here for a while, you know this is the kind of stuff that we tend to try to, to hammer on quite a bit. Um, but nevertheless, this is where we are. It's an important passage. And uh, so let's begin. And let me, let me just pray first again. Lord, I just again come before you and I ask, Lord, that you would just speak through me. Lord, um, no one here needs an encounter with Jeff. Lord, what we need is an encounter with you and your Holy Spirit. We need to hear from your word. We need to be reminded of you, of your wisdom. And so, God, I just pray, Lord, that as we read this passage, there may be some of us who have read this passage a thousand times, but I pray today, Lord, tonight, we would read it as if it were new, that, God, you would again open our eyes to the reality of it, and that we'd be blessed humbled, challenged, changed by your gospel tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight is um, one of those kind of showdown passages in the New Testament. There's a few of them. Um, As you guys know, there's several times in the scriptures where Jesus has um, showdowns with the people, uh, specifically with the religious leaders and the Pharisees of the time. And this one is over cleansing rituals. And it would be really easy just on a surface level for us to see this text, read through it and go, why do we really need to spend some time talking about cleansing rituals? Isn't that even just Old Testament law that doesn't necessarily apply to us anymore anyway? And really, what's the big deal? We understand germs, we get all this stuff, so why do we need to talk about cleansing rituals? But it's important to remember or understand that Jesus, in these kinds of confrontations, if I can use this phrase, never picked a fight for no reason. So when Jesus is going into these conflicts, and they are conflicts, please understand, like we have a way of kind of sanctifying and sanitizing these passages as if they were just these like really humble discussions between two parties that really seek some sort of understanding. But this is a full-on trap by the Pharisees designed to bust Jesus, and he knows it, and he's coming at them hard. You got to know this, okay? So this is not just like a soft, let's all sit around the coffee table and have Bible study together. This is a confrontation that's taking place here. Um, And it doesn't happen without reason. There's purpose behind it. In fact, this here, um, this text is the longest of the confrontation passages that we come across. And so even by its very nature and its length and its, its place here in the book of Mark, we should lean in and kind of pay attention to this because the issue is not about hand washing. Hand washing is the frame in which they're dealing with the issue. The issue is about tradition and religion and legalism. And it's described to us as the tradition of the elders. So verse 1 says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, 
that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to, and you can underline this phrase, the tradition of the elders. This is a key for understanding this passage. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? So here's Jesus with his apostles, and these guys come. The, con- the, the conflict here is between Jesus and the religious leaders at the time, the, the Pharisees, the rulers, the religious rulers of that place. And they see Jesus' disciples are eating, and they're eating in a way that is incredibly shocking to them. They're not washing their hands when they eat. Now, this is way, way more than just good manners and good sanitation, right? I mean, uh, we would be shocked if our waitress, I actually saw someone tweeting about this today. They said the, the waitress actually scratched her armpit and then served the food. So if we saw that, we would be appalled, and there could be conflict, correct? But because of hygiene, okay? And I would, that would be fine with me, right? But, but in this particular case, the issue is not hygiene, so don't get distracted here. He's seeing the people, and they're not washing hands. These Pharisees are, and they're coming to Jesus, and they're saying, why don't they follow the tradition of the elders? Now, the Jewish people, I believe we all understand, believe in the same Bible. They study the same Bible with regards to the Old Testament as we do. When we were in Israel just a few weeks ago, several times our Jewish guide and other people with us would talk about the fact that the Bible is proving itself true. The Bible proves itself true, and they would talk about believing and reading the Bible. They're talking about the Old Testament. So they would, they would look all the way up through Malachi, same scriptures that we use. And in particular, in Jesus' day here, when they're talking about things like the law, they're talking about what's referred to as the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. You might refer to it as the Mosaic Law. You'll hear it, to it referred to that as well. So if someone was saying, yes, we should observe and study the scriptures, we should follow them, would we agree with that? Yeah, we would agree with that, right? But now the Jewish people had other things as well. Um, They had, in particular, something that was referred to as the traditions of the elders. It's been preserved in what we refer to today, or the Jewish people refer to today as the Mishnah, part of the Talmud. And this is the traditions handed down through the rabbinical teachings throughout years. It's oral tradition is another way it's referred to. Um, And depending on which rabbi you follow, if you're Jewish, there's different levels of importance that different people will place on it. Just like in Christianity, we have different elements of Christianity that place a higher esteem on the scriptures. Some people, word for word, that's the way we teach the scriptures here. Other people might teach it with a more liberal approach to it, saying, well, it's more ideas. Um, And the same thing happens in Judaism. And within that, you have elements that would either teach the oral tradition as this is, this is what we've always believed, this is really important, all the way to the belief that God literally gave Moses the oral tradition on Mount Sinai at the same time that he gave God or gave Moses the law, the Torah. So there's a lot of different beliefs. In fact, some rabbinical teachings actually uphold the oral tradition to a higher degree than they even do written scripture. And they will teach that, that you need to follow them. This is even more important than that. So you go, okay, well, what is the oral tradition? Well, the oral tradition is intended to work 
in conjunction with God's law. This is really important to understand because here's the idea that most of the Jewish rabbis would teach with regards to the oral tradition. They would say when God gave Moses the law, he gave Moses his desire for his people. And then when God gave the oral tradition, he gave us the tools or the how to live out the desires that he had for his people. So in the Old Testament, you have uh, uh, writings in the law with regards to cleansing rituals and all of these sorts of things. But then the Torah, in addition to the Torah, the rabbinical traditions, the oral traditions go to a whole nother degree. It basically says, if this is how God wants us to live, then let's be really formulaic about what that should look like. And so here's how we will live out God's particular desires. And some 25% of the Mishnah, of the oral tradition, is dedicated to cleansing rituals. 25%. This is a huge chunk of Jewish rabbinical teaching that was fully in play at the time of Jesus Christ. 25%. All of these different sorts of rituals. And, and so here's how this sort of came up, right? In the Old Testament, they're the only real cleansing rituals that are prescribed to the Jewish people are prescribed to the priests. To the priests, before they come before God, before they come into the synagogue, later before they come into the temple, there's certain cleansing rituals that they're required to go through. The only cleansing rituals that are actually given to, let's call them the lay people, the average Jewish person, deal with those who have come into contact with something that is regarded as unclean. And even with regards to that, unclean is defined, it's a very, very narrow, very small definition. It's those who have come into contact with different, um, uh, either dead bodies or, or bodily discharges. So someone who has leprosy and you come into contact with them, you had to go through cleansing rituals to be restored back into fellowship with the Jewish people and some of those sorts of things. And that, that's the only cleansing rituals that were given to the Jewish people. But somewhere along the line, People begin to look at this. They're like, okay, well, if the priests are God's chosen people to mediate between God and us, and this is the prescription that's given to the priests, that they should go through all these cleansing rituals, maybe it's a really good, good idea that we all go through some of those cleansing rituals. And so as the oral tradition was brought to the Jewish people, all of that expanded, and suddenly there's all sorts of cleansing rituals that were put upon all of the Jewish people, none of which are evident or found in the actual scriptures themselves. This is important to understand. So this is extra biblical teaching is what we would say, but extra biblical teaching that they would admit is extra biblical, but just as important, okay? When we were in Israel, um, we ran into lots, I mean, there were several, many, many, many places we ran into Orthodox Jewish people, and they stood out like a sore thumb. They, you know, they had the hats, they had the curls, they have all that sort of stuff. And there was one time when one person from our group, a guy like sort of fell down, I, I don't remember what was happening, but, but this gal came into contact with, actually sort of bumped into her, he bumped into her, whatever it was that happened, someone who was an Orthodox Jew, and he freaked out. When this happened, didn't yell at her, he wasn't mean, but bolted to go clean, to go wash. Because he is someone, not a priest, not one of the Levites, I mean, as far as we know anyway, but he's adopted the oral tradition. So coming into contact with someone else there, um, that really kind of messed that up for them. And so unclean began to be this broad definition, lots of different scenarios in which you could end up being unclean and now you need to go through and wash. 
Situations such as any form of human excretion, so spit, blood, menstruation, infections, any of those sorts of things. Uh, Women after childbirth, if you had contact with them, or if you are a woman right after childbirth, unclean. Corpses, decaying flesh, creeping things, which I think we all know as spiders, right? Um, Clearly. Um, Idols, that's for you. Idols. Uh, Gentiles. Gentiles are unclean. So if you're a Jewish person that comes into contact with someone who is not a Jew, you are now unclean. That was our boy's problem in Israel. Uh, Samaritans. They're sort of Jews, but they're sort of not. They're kind of like, they looked at them as mixed breeds, unclean, didn't take that. Uh, Lepers, tax collectors got thrown in there somewhere. Um, Even the scriptures, by the way, the oral tradition says if you come in contact with the scripture, the Torah that has been translated into Assyrian, if it's in that language, it's unclean. So there were cleansing rituals for that. Um, even a trip to the marketplace, as is pointed out, would require you to have to go through cleansing rituals. Because if you've ever been to a Jewish market, you know it's crowded. You're going to be bumping into people. There's who knows who's in there, Jews, Gentiles, all these different people. They're probably selling dead meat. That's a corpse. I mean, there's all sorts of scenarios that they would have to go through. And so there were all these cleansing rituals that they had to do. In addition to personal cleansing rituals, then you had, as the text alludes to here, rituals for cleaning stuff. For example, you cleaned bowls and cups with way more intensity and way more ritual than you did plates because it was viewed that cups hold things in such a way that plates don't. It just gets silly, right? And then it goes into so many other things. So you have Sabbath observance for the Jewish people. And that was really interesting while we were there because we're staying in a hotel. I think my hotel room that day was on like the seventh floor, and it's the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, pushing a button to determine what floor you go to would be considered what? Work for the Jewish people. So they had one elevator out of the four that was the Shabbat, which is a Sabbath elevator. And that elevator on the Sabbath stops at every single floor, no matter what you push. We learn to avoid that elevator fast, right? And so the idea is is so the Jewish person could come on there and not push the button. Now, God does say to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, right? He does say, this is a day of rest because I rested. And it's this idea, this pattern that God wants in our life, right? Do you think God's intent in that law was, because I really don't want people pushing those elevator buttons? There's a difference there. There's the spirit of the law and there's the letter of the law. And in even uh, sabbatical teachings with regards to oral traditions, they kind of just went silly. I mean, if you have false teeth, you weren't allowed by some rabbinical teachings to wear your false teeth on the Sabbath because you might lean over, your false teeth might fall out, and then you would be tempted to pick them up, which is work. If you had a wooden leg, there was debate. There's written, you can look it up, debate amongst rabbis as to if there was a fire in your home and it was the Sabbath, is someone with a wooden leg allowed to grab his wooden leg before he leaves his home during the fire? There's debate over these sorts of things. And they're getting caught up in all of these little things. Now, those of you that have been with us, we've been working through the book of Mark so far. So think about this. Jesus is very ceremonially unclean just based on the interactions we've already seen that he had. In chapter 1, he's with lepers. In chapter 2, he's with a tax collector. 
In chapter five, Gentiles. Later in chapter five, a menstruating woman. And then later on in chapter five, he heals a corpse. So there's lots of opportunity along the way for Jesus to have been declared ceremonially unclean, right? So they know this. They're aware of this. So this question wasn't just like on the fly. This is an attack intended to discredit Christ, discredit his disciples. It's one of many attacks that Jesus went through. So what is the purpose, though, of the Jewish holy traditions? I think this is important for us to think through. The Jews have these different holy traditions. And and listen, don't make the mistake of thinking that they just adopted all these stupid laws because they're not really serious about following God. It doesn't take you long to be around, even to this day, an Orthodox Jewish person to understand they are incredibly sincere about their desire to honor God. And they're not just adopting these things because they want their lives to be more difficult. They're doing it because they believe this is what honors God. It's important to understand that. You know, there's some people, Jesus will call some of them here in a little bit hypocrites. Some hypocrites are hypocrites because they're devious, like Judas, Judas kissing Jesus as a way of greeting, but that was really a form to signal to those who were going to arrest him. That's a hypocritical move, and he was doing it intentionally to be devious. Some people are hypocritical, though, because they're deceived, and they're not really sure what it is they're dealing with. They don't understand even how they're missing this, and Jesus is pointing some of these things out, too. So the purpose of the Jewish traditions, well, the Jewish people take very seriously God's command to Israel in the Old Testament that says, be ye holy. I am holy, you be holy. They take that seriously. And so they desire to follow that. They want to honor God and do what God's commandments have told them to do. They're very sincere about this. And so in the oral tradition, what they're doing is they're taking a command that God gave them and they're making it formulaic. We love this as people. Like, no gray areas, let's define it. And let's say, if, if our call is to be holy, then let's make it a set, a, this is what we do. If I check, 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 I was holy today, awesome. I'll do it again tomorrow. And that's what they're looking to do, something formulaic. Number two, they believe, even the very word holy means separate, and so they want to be separate from the pagan influences that are all around them. So a lot of the Old Testament law given to the people of Israel was designed to mark them as being different from all the other people and all the other people of the world. So that the world would see, who was involved in all sorts of idolatry and paganism and sexual immorality and all these things, they would see this group of people that doesn't do any of that. And they're blessed, Genesis 11, I will bless you. And the Jewish people are going to be an avenue through which God blesses the rest of the world. But they're looking at this more like, we don't want to, not so much as like, I'm going to stand out so that people see us and glorify God, the way Jesus teaches it in Matthew chapter 5. They're looking at it as sort of a wall of separation, if you will, that separates them and protects them from the people of the world outside. It's kind of like the old game when you're a kid, cooties, right? Oh, he's got cooties on you, don't let, or or tag, or something like that. We don't want to come into contact with anyone else, because then we might get it. And so they've got all of these purification rituals and all of this law that's designed to set them apart from the pagan influence that surrounds them. And then the third thing is this. They believe, remember, they believe with all their heart that God, by his very mouth, ordained these details. They believe that the oral tradition is absolutely God-given, and therefore, this is important, 
They believe we must enact them, we must live these things out in order to meet with God. This is hugely important tonight, so please get this. The Jewish people believe this is ordained and given by God, and so we must live these things out in order to meet with God. It's very much like a surgeon. The idea of a surgeon, a surgeon cleans himself up before going into surgery. A surgeon would never go from an autopsy straight into brain surgery. They would never do that because they understand that there's germs and contaminants that cause problems, and so there's these rituals to go through. Well, the Jewish people do understand sin defiles. And can we ask, look, does sin defile? Absolutely. That's important to understand because a text like this can be taken by someone and used as excuse to go do whatever they want. No, look, sin defiles. It distorts, it corrupts, and it kills. So we should, to the best of our ability and by the power of God, do whatever we can to avoid sin. Amen? But do we have to avoid sin to have relationship with God? Is that what determines our ability to come before God? The Jewish people would say, yes. We need to cleanse ourselves. And if we have sin, there's ritual to go through because until I go through that ritual, I cannot come into the presence of God. This is incredibly important to them. They believe this in, 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 with all of their hearts. And so here's the problem. Can they do that? Is it even possible? Is that a reality? I understand they believe it. I understand they're sincere about it. But is it true? Because in reality, we cannot possibly clean ourselves. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's a very sanitized translation. And I almost, I, I've been thinking about like, ah, I, won't, I won't tell them what it really means. I'm going to tell you what it really means. Some of you maybe have heard this before. When it says it's, we are like a unsanitary garment, other texts may say filthy rags, it's speaking of a menstruation rag from that day. And so the idea is that we, even in our righteousness, are unclean like this before God. Even in the good things that we do, no matter how hard we try to clean ourselves up before God, we are a fallen people. And no amount of washing is going to take care of that. And so Jesus is trying to teach them this. And he's going to reach back to a different passage, even in Isaiah right here. And he says to them in verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. 
What he's saying here is, look, even in your emphasis of keeping the law, you are breaking the law. So, so the scriptures teach, honor your father and mother. And so as your father and mother get old, family, very important to the Jewish culture, to the Jewish people, your responsibility to take care of them, to love them, to look out for them as they get older, all the, uh, I almost said all the older people in the congregation, that would have got me in so much trouble. So I'll just move on. Um, this is what they're supposed to do. But then they have this little thing in the oral tradition that says you can declare Corban. In other words, you can say, all of my possessions are dedicated to God. And it was kind of like a delayed gifting program. It was saying, look, I, I'm not going to have inheritance for my family, for my parents who need her, my kids following me up or whatever. And it was a way of you staying in control of what you had, avoiding responsibilities to take care of family and do all these things. And it was completely and totally legal. But is it honoring God's law? Is it keeping God's law? Well, absolutely not, because in the process, you're dishonoring your family. You're preventing them from what God's law set up, a way that you would honor them and take care of your family, and you're dodging all of that, but under a veil of holiness, because you're keeping the oral tradition. So you look really spiritual. On the outside, things look totally legit, but on the inside, there's something else at play here. So Jesus points out to them what Paul points out to us later, and this is the idea. The Jewish people are so focused. I'm going to keep the law. We've got to keep the law. We've got to come before law. But then Paul comes in in the book of Romans and he reminds us, look, the whole point of the law in the first place was to show you that you cannot keep the law. You can't do it. You can't possibly do it. The point of the law was to show you that you need more than the law. The point of the law was to show you that you need a Savior. Paul writes this in the book of Romans, chapter 3. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The idea was, in our failures, as we're studying God's law, we are continually confronted by the reality that we can't do it. I mean, how, how many of us in this room have spent time over and over, let's just say in the last month, reading the scriptures, reading the Bible on your own, and you read something and went, oops. Anyone? Just me? No. That's by design. That's what it's for. That as we're reading through the Word of God and we're seeing God's standards for holiness, we are reminded over and over and over, we can not do it. And it's not so that we start feeling sorry for ourselves. It's not so that we develop some sort of inferiority complex. It's not so that we get all worked up. It's not so that we bail on it and go, then what's the point either? The point is so that as we see this, we go, then I need mercy. Because under the law, I am in trouble. And so I am throwing myself, if you will, on the mercy of the court. And it's to show us our desperate need for a Savior, whether before salvation or after salvation. Would you get, keep your finger in Mark? Look at Zechariah. Just, oh, I don't know, what's that, about an eighth of an inch, maybe three sixteenths to the left. And in Zechariah chapter 3, there's this really cool vision that Zechariah has of Joshua the high priest. And 
And in Zechariah 3, it says this. So he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Who's the angel of the Lord? This is Jesus Christ. When you run across that in Scripture, you can just pencil that in if it helps. Jesus Christ. So he's having this vision. The high priest of Israel is standing before God himself. The high priest, his responsibility is to do what? To mediate between the people. The high priest is the one who goes through all the cleansing rituals, goes into the temple, and offers the sacrifice that brings forgiveness of sin to all the people of Israel. So this man represents a nation. And he's the one that even when the high priest was going through his cleansing rituals in the Old Testament time, he would go through the cleansings in front of the people. Now they would put, some of it was bathing, so they would put curtains around. But Jewish people would all come around and watch to make sure that the high priest was doing what he was supposed to do with regards to cleansing rituals because he's their representative. He's the one that's going to go into the temple on that one day per year and make that sacrifice and then come out and grant forgiveness to the people. He's their representative, right? And so here he is before God. And it says here, and Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand or a stick plucked from the fire? He's speaking of the man. Is this not someone that I have rescued from the fire? And now Joshua, this high priest, is standing before the angel. But look at this. Clothed with filthy garments. You know what that actually translates to? Might as well. I'm grossing you out on the other ones too. Feces. The idea in this picture is that the high priest who's to go through all these rituals to present himself before God clean and to represent all of the other people, having gone through all this stuff, now he stands before Jesus and it's like he has on garments that are covered in feces. That's how clean he is. And yet look what happens. And so Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban upon his head. And they put a clean turban upon his head, and they clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is a beautiful picture of what happens when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Satan is there to accuse. And so he points his finger at you, if you will. And he says, Jeff is guilty of this and this and this. And no matter who we are in this room, he has plenty to choose from. Amen? And are his accusations accurate? Absolutely. And no matter how much we've cleaned ourselves, they're true. And so we stand there in our filthy rags, in our, if you will, feces-covered garments. But Jesus Christ says, I have removed your sin. I have removed the filth from you. And you know the analogy from there. We're clothed then in his righteousness. That's the beauty of it. He says, put a clean turban upon him. Put clean robes on him. What we learn later in the scriptures is that he's putting his own robe, if you will, upon us. 
Not because we were able to clean ourselves up in such a way as to deserve it, but because he's gracious and good. And what Jesus is wanting the people back in the book of, in, in the book of Mark here to understand is that this idea that we can somehow clean ourselves up to a point that we have now earned the ability to stand in favor before God and that we've cleaned ourselves up to a point that we can now approach God based on our own works and our own cleanliness, it's just not possible. And so he gets these guys together and take a look at it. We're back in Mark here. He says in the book of Mark, look at verse 14. And he called the people to him. So he gathers everybody together and again said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now think about it. You're the Jewish people. You've got the oral tradition. You can be holy if you do this, 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 and they've made a formula out of it, if you will. And Jesus says, that's, that's not what does it. You're going through all these rituals to try to gain approval, and you're setting up this oral tradition, which they refer to as the fence around the law. It, it protects the law from being broken. And so you even think that by going through these things, you're avoiding sin, you're staying pure, but the issue is you can't put a wall that separates you from sin because it's within you. That's the problem. The issue is not something out there. It's not about the pagan influence that you're surrounded by. It's not about the washings that you did. The issue is an issue of the heart. And you're focusing on law, which says you can't eat this food and you can't eat that food. And you think that by doing it, now you're clean. But the food's not what deals with it. The food goes in. It doesn't go into the heart. It goes through the stomach and then it's expelled. And it doesn't matter what you eat, it's expelled and that's not clean, right? So that doesn't change based on what kind of food comes in. You're missing the idea. There is nothing outside a person that going in can defile him. But verse 23, all these evil things come from within. And this list of sins here, do you know, this has actually been criticized by many as something that the early church wrote back into Jesus' teachings because people think it sounds too much like Paul. No way Jesus would have said this. There's many that believe that. That sounds like one of Paul's lists in Corinthians about the people that will not inherit the kingdom. And Jesus would never have done that. But look at Jesus' list. From within the heart of a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Those are easy to notice, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious, like, am I stealing? No. Is he stealing? Is he a thief? No. I mean, those sorts of things. Those are obvious action, peripheral, outside evident type sins. But look at the other ones. Coveting? How do you... Anyone ever covet? 
wish you had something that God and his provision hasn't given you before? How do you stop that? What about uh, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride? Those are a lot harder to understand because those are heart attitudes, heart issues that are easy to hide from someone else. And what he says is, these sins come from within. I had this conversation with my mom, actually, while she was here visiting, and we were just spending some time one night sitting out on the back patio till way too late, and just talking about our lives, our upbringing, the stuff that's gone on in our family over the years, all these kind of things, and I shared with my mom, seems like every time we get together, I share her something she didn't know about me, because I, I learned early on to be a pretty sneaky kid. I grew up in a religious, legalistic environment, and I learned really quickly that I need to be able to hide things. And so there was a lot of things that I did or went through when I was young that my parents never knew about. And as my mom and I, our relationship's grown through the years, and there's probably a better way of saying that is as I've matured throughout the years, um, we've been able to talk about a lot of these different things. And so while she was here recently, we were talking about some of that, and she was really surprised by some of the stuff that I had been through, things that had happened to me, things that I had done. And she started talking about, with, with sorrow in her voice, she's like, like she had failed me. And she's like, son, I, we tried so hard to protect you from the influences that would cause these things. We tried so hard to insulate you from and all of this sort of stuff. And I was like, mom, but you can't insulate me from me. You just can't do that. And those of you that have had kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That first day that one of your children deviously sinned when they were young, and you're like, where did that even, how did they learn that? Because we are fallen. And there, there was this great analogy. I wanted to get a video of it, and I couldn't find a good one. But, but if you remember a couple of years ago, we did a marriage series here, and we, we did a teaching with Andy Stanley. It had, like, the video. Do you guys remember Mr. and Mrs. Mug? Any of you guys? He had this analogy where he had two like beer, root beer mugs and, um, and they were filled. One of them was filled with a whole bunch of pink beads and it had a little face on the front to make it kind of look like a girl. And then the, the other mug had all these blue beads in it. And he was talking about marriage and how sometimes, you know, as husbands and wife, um, we, we get on each other's nerves from time to time. There's conflict and something comes out and one person says the other and at some point, inevitably, some of you guys are looking at each other like, never us, liars. But anyway... At some point you bump, and he, he bumps the two mugs together, and a bunch of the beads just spilled out all over there. And he was like, and stuff comes out. And a lot of times our reaction is, I wouldn't say that if you would be, if you wouldn't do that. If you weren't driving me crazy, I wouldn't have reacted like that. I wouldn't say that thing if you didn't do that to me. And we start kind of blaming some of these peripheral things. But the point he was making was this. The beads came out of the mug because the beads are in the mug. Does that make sense? Maybe the scenarios of life put the squeeze on, but they were there. There's another story by Paul Tripp. I referred or referenced or recommended his book this weekend on Sunday, but he told a story about when he was a little kid and he was at a family gathering and they have a drunk uncle. It was just completely wasted one, one day at this family gathering and he just starts running his mouth and he was saying 
all sorts of just complete vulgarities right there in the presence of, of these two kids. And, and their mom happens to come by and she sees what's going on at this family gathering. And she grabbed the two sons, Paul and his brother, yanks them out of the house, probably had some choice words for her brother there for what he was saying. And then she goes storming outside with the kids, throws them in the back seat of the car, gets in there, fires up the car and starts backing out of the driveway. She's mad and they're gonna go home. And he said, I'll never forget this. She suddenly stopped the car, turned off the ignition and turned to us in the back seat and she said, boys, I want you to remember something. There is nothing that comes out the mouth of a drunk that wasn't there to begin with. The, the idea is our problem as humans is not the periphery. Our problem as humans is not our next door neighbor who's in sin. Our problem as humans is not the fact that we live in a culture that seems to be going further and further away from God. Our problem is that we have heart issues ourselves, And no amount of cleansing and ritual and self-work can deal with that. We need a Savior. And this is important for us to grasp, guys, because there's a couple of reasons for this. This is why it's so important for us to understand. I'll be done. Number one, if we don't understand this, it would be completely possible for us to teach a measure of Christianity to our children or to others that has no need whatsoever of Jesus. Please hear me on this. It would be very easy and possible for us to teach a measure, a brand of Christianity to others that has no need anywhere for Jesus. It's got a formal name. It's referred to as moral therapeutic deism. And it just teaches, be good. Follow the rules. Do right. Be good. It's kind of the Santa Claus.